Well, by way of introduction, I want to thank your chairman, uh, Mr. Byrne, for his very kind and generous words of welcome to me here, not only this evening, but as I arrived off the plane from Belfast early this morning, and he's looked after me right royally all day. Uh, we had a lovely morning uh, going round Emmanuel College and then looked after in the premises of the Christian Institute this afternoon. And I go back with happy memories. And I, I'm sure this evening I won't be disappointed because uh, you look as if you're, you're people who are uh, here to listen uh, to the Word of God. And I trust that God will be with us as we seek to expound these opening verses in the chapter 20 of the book of Exodus. <clears throat> Now it is of fundamental importance that when speaking of any text of scripture to to put it in context and I'm sure uh, Professor John Mackay has already done that but I'm making no assumptions and so I hope you bear with me for the first five minutes and we'll put the commandments in their biblical context. The commandments were given at a particular point in redemptive history when God's people had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt They were set free from the domination and the tyranny of the Egyptians to serve the living and true God. Exodus 20 and verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's what God had done for his people. So how were they now to serve him? The commandments which follow reveal to redeem people how they were to live in a manner which was pleasing to God. They'd been saved by grace, and now they were to show their love and gratitude to the mercy and grace of God, which they had so recently experienced. And of course, in this respect, nothing has changed with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover lamb pointed forward to him. Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Much has been fulfilled, of course. But Christ was sacrificed upon the cross at Calvary to set us free from the bondage, not of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but the bondage of sin and Satan, to deliver us from the tyranny of sin and to set us free to serve God in a fallen and sinful world. And there are many texts in the New New Testament which point out that that service should be marked by obedience. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command, Jesus said. As well in John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, not for the believer. And I think the text that puts it all in sharp focus is Matthew 20, verses 19, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything 
I have commanded you. That's often forgotten about in the Great Commission. That we are to teach the converts to obey everything that Christ taught his disciples. And then surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. But what has Christ commanded? It's interesting that Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 would not believe himself bound to the ceremonial law, but still considered himself under obligation to obey Christ's law. 1 Corinthians 9.21 To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And then in parenthesis, Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. And... The question, of course, arises, well, what did he mean by Christ's law? And it's interesting that Christ in the Sermon on the Mount sees the opportunity to expound some of the Ten Commandments, spelling out their their true meaning and their proper application. And introducing that passage in Matthew chapter 5 with the words, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And so the context in which the commandments were given initially were that of redemption. And as his redeemed people, then they are in that context for us tonight. Before God gave his people the commandments, he first of all reminded them of who he was and what he had done for them. And so before we consider the commandments, God would remind us of these same facts. I am the Lord your God, the one who is, the one who was, the one who will be, the everlasting God, the covenant-keeping God. I trust your God and my God, and the God who has redeemed his people by the precious blood of Christ, the God who has saved them from the bondage of Satan, the God who has delivered them from the agonizing torments of hell. One important conclusion that we draw from this is that man is not saved by keeping the commandments. We must underscore that in a lecture like this. We're not saved that way today. No one was ever saved by keeping the commandments. But once man is saved by the grace of God, these commandments become our pattern for living. Not saved by keeping the commandments, but saved to keep them. As the Holy Spirit said through Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.22, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. We ask the question, how? How can the believer honour God? How can the believer glorify God? How can you and I glorify God in our body and in our spirit? And the simple answer is by accepting the commandments as God's revealed will for our lives and endeavouring to live in accordance with them by the help of the Holy Spirit. Now the Ten Commandments are composed of, of two parts essentially. The first four which describe our duty to God and they're essentially to do with worship. The first commandment, the object of worship. The second commandment, the manner of worship, the third commandment, our attitude in worship, 
And then the fourth commandment, the time of worship. The second uh, table of the law, commandments 5 to 10, refer to our duty to to man and are essentially to do with service. And that in serving our fellow human being, we demonstrate our love and loyalty to God. We begin then with that aspect which concerns worship and beginning with the object of true worship as it is set forth in the first commandment. Exodus 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. We notice first of all the unworthy objects of man's worship. The commandment is clear. It is straightforward. You shall have no other gods before me. But do people in this day and age have other gods? Do the majority in this sophisticated society worship anything? And the straightforward answer is yes, they do. People have their gods, more than I could list tonight. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he said, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a god. To love anything more than God is to make it a god. For you see, man is incurably religious. The religious instinct has been planted deep within his nature. Man has this deep desire to to look up or to look out to something outside and beyond himself. If he doesn't know the one true God, then he makes a God in more primitive times of wood or stone, gold or silver. Or in more modern times, he makes a God in his own imagination and bows down and worships it. Every civilization in history has had its gods, even the most advanced. The ancient Greeks were noted for their culture and learning, but even they had up to 30,000 gods. When Paul was in Athens, as we were reading, and Acts the capital, uh, when he was in Athens, the capital of Greece, he found gods in every corner of the city, gods in the homes, gods in the gardens, gods in the marketplace, gods everywhere. Then fearing that they might have missed out a god, they erected a statue to the unknown god. Down through the ages, men have worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. They've worshipped the rivers, the forests, the birds and the fish. People today are starving in India for lack of food, while thousands of cows roam the streets. Uh, they won't slay them for food because they, they worship them as gods. When people do not know the Lord as the true God, they create gods for themselves, gods which are merely figments of their imagination. To trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. So in our British society today, what do the masses worship? What other gods do they have? How are they breaking the first commandment? Well, we'll comment on a few of them. There's the God of wealth. There are those who trust in riches. And riches have become their God. Worldly wealth, they think, will satisfy all their desires. Worldly wealth, they believe, will protect them from every difficulty and every problem. 
On Wednesday and Saturday evenings in Lisburn, we see people queuing to buy their lottery ticket in the hope, in the hope that they will become rich. How foolish as they bow down and worship the God of wealth. Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches. And they are deceitful because they promise much. They promise to satisfy every desire, but they only increase people's desire and make people more discontent. They promise to bring happiness and peace of mind, but they only bring distress and anguish of spirit. That's what happens when people make a god of riches. Then uh, we notice also that they make a god of human wisdom. There are those who trust in human wisdom and, and make it their god. And in this age of advanced science and technology, many people have rejected the god of the Bible and placed their trust in the theories of scientists. Romans 1.22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And when people are challenged about their accountability to their creator, they seek to evade the challenge by saying that man is the product of the evolutionary process, the product of time and chance. When they stand before the judgment seat, the God of all the earth will demonstrate the foolishness of trusting in human wisdom. And then there's the God of chance. Many bow down and worship the goddess of luck. We've already mentioned the lottery as an example of people pursuing the God of wealth. But it is also an example of the God of chance. This God keeps promising to fulfill people's hopes and dreams and aspirations. But invariably, they continue to be disappointed. There's the God of superstition. A friend told me recently that the cheapest uh, day in the year to travel to North America is on a Friday when it falls on the 13th of the month because no one wants to travel on that particular day. So uh, there's, a, there's a cheap outing for you. You see, they're, they're, they're bowing down to the God of superstition and they're in bondage to this God. This is the God of education. Some people are so concerned about their children's education that they put it before the spiritual well-being of their children, put it before the spiritual nurture of their children. Make sure you have your homework done, but there's no concern to teach them the word of God. There's not the same concern to instruct them in the things that matter for eternity. They may get on well in this world, but if they're not prepared for the next, all the education of this in this world, apart from God, will not serve them any good. There's a God of pleasure. It's so rife, isn't it? Those who love pleasure more than God. Paul warned us about this as he wrote to Timothy, and he said the time would come when men would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with enjoyment. We know how to enjoy ourselves in Ireland. But when love for enjoyment, where love for pleasure overtakes our love for God, then it becomes an idol if we put pleasure before God. 
and how much we find this God being worshipped in our modern culture. We are living in an age of pleasure seekers and not content with six days of the week they encroach upon God's day for their own pleasure. Yes, they may tip their hat to the Lord for an hour but then they cannot wait to get out of church to the the golf courses or to the beaches or to the shopping centres pursuing their own pleasure on God's holy day. The God of pleasure. Then the God of family life. People erect an altar uh, to the family. Many of these things are good in and of themselves, but when they are placed before God, then they become idolatry. They become a false god. We should love our children. Husbands ought to love their wives. Wives ought to love their, their husbands. But we must put God first. Then the God of business. There are those who love their business more than they love God. And so when, when it comes to whether we'll, we'll pursue our Christian interests or whether we'll pursue our business interests, business takes first and business is put before God. God or the things of God with such people are put in second place. All right, if I have time, but if I don't, then the things of God are put in the back burner and the worship of God is forsaken for business interests. The God of self, a very prominent God today. There are those who who love themselves more than they love God. There are men today of whom it could be said that they worship themselves with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength and with all their mind. Haven't you heard people say, I'm only interested in number one? And that can affect us all. And then there's the gods of our multi-faith society. We are told that we must give equal place to the gods of Islam, the gods of Buddhism, the gods of Hinduism. To give these gods the same place as we give to Jehovah. But to do so was to break the first commandment. However cleverly these gods are presented to us, they are false gods and must always be regarded as such. The gods, some of the gods which unbelievers worship. I haven't given you an exhaustive list. People make a god of sport. God of nature, God of health, God of popularity. Paul, I believe, would have been truly vexed if he were alive today, seeing almost this whole nation given over to idolatry. Unbelievers of a multitude of, a multitude of gods which they faithfully worship. But how does this affect the believer? How does this affect us? We profess to believe in Jesus Christ and worship God alone. But have we ever been guilty of idolatry? Have we ever been guilty of putting other gods in the place of the one true God? Remember that to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. To love anything more than God is to make it a God. In other words, 
Who has first place in your life? Is it the Lord or worldly wealth? Is it the Lord or worldly wisdom? Is it God or pleasure? Is it God or family? God or business? God or self? We need to search our hearts. And if we are honest, we all at times have been guilty of worshipping other gods. And when Satan tempts us to do so, in the future, or even now, we must throw back in his face the words which Christ used in his defence against the evil one. Luke 4 and verse 8. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The unworthy objects of interest, of worship. It is one thing to give to other gods that which is due to the Lord alone. But it is even more heinous to deny the existence of God at all. And so quite clearly by implication the first commandment forbids atheism. The claim that there is no God denying the existence of God. And so we come secondly to consider the denial of God's existence. We might be inclined to think that this is a modern sin. It's a sin of the the 20th or the 21st century, but it goes back a long way. Psalm 14 and verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 3,000 years ago, atheists were around. I suggest to you tonight that there are three kinds of of atheists. There is, first of all, the theoretical atheist. The theoretical atheist is the one who absolutely denies the existence of God. In fact, denies the existence of any gods. It is such a man's decided opinion. It's his decided belief that there is no God. It is something which he has thought about. It is something which he has considered. And he has come to this conclusion that there is no God. The theoretical atheist. I trust no one here fits into that category. Then there is secondly the virtual atheist. The virtual atheist. Now, the virtual atheist believes in the existence of a God, but not the God of the Bible. He denies the existence of the God revealed in Scripture, the God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, the God who in his being is wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He does not believe that there are three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The God of the virtual atheist is a finite, limited being who is regarded as a a necessity, someone who is regarded as a necessary implication of the human mind. This God is usually regarded as having no absolute, independent existence apart from man. And apart from the universe. And I trust that we have no virtual atheists among us. Because when analysed, the virtual atheist 
differs little from the bald theoretical atheist. It's a more subtle form of atheism and appears to be less wicked. But in actual, in actual fact, it is just as wicked. And then, thirdly, the practical atheist. And practical atheism is very common among professing Christians. And I emphasize the word professing. It is defined as people who conduct their lives as if there is no God. Even though in their profession of faith they acknowledge the existence of God. They they would profess to believe in the God of the Bible. And they would even be found in a place of worship on the Lord's day. Worshipping this God. Singing songs to this God. Hearing this God speak through his word as it is read and proclaimed. But yet if you watch their lives from Monday through to Saturday. In their family life or in their business life or in their political life. Or as they pursue their commercial interests, there is no thought of God in, in all of these things. And so that is the practical atheist. The one who professes to believe in God and yet who leaves God out of all his thoughts. Atheism, of whatever kind, is forbidden in the first commandment. Then we move thirdly to the sole object of man's worship from the more negative approach to the more positive. Who is to be the sole object of man's worship? When we connect the first part of verse 2 and verse 3, the answer is clearly defined. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me, before the Lord your God. He is to be the sole object of man's worship. Now man cannot live without an object to worship. And so the question we now ask is, is there a sole and proper object of man's worship? Or does it matter who or what we worship? Well, the popular opinion is that it, it doesn't matter as long as we sincerely worship something outside and beyond ourselves. That is the view of our multi-faith culture. But God clearly states, you shall have no other gods before me. He is to be the object of all true worship. And it should be our concern to see that God is the object of our worship. There are two things which help in this regard. In order, us for, to, in order for us to worship God... We must know God. We must know facts about his person and character. How can we know God? Well, we know him to a certain extent through through natural revelation, through the world that he has made. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. But more precisely, God is made known through his word. And especially in the person of Jesus Christ. Hence the importance of reading and understanding God's word. So we might know God, that we might worship him as God. Second Corinthians 4 verse 6. 
the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. We must enter into a personal relationship with God. And we can only do this by accepting his Son as our Saviour and as our Lord. By taking God as our God means that we trust him, means that we obey him, means that we serve him. And when we have come to know God, we will seek to give him the glory that is due to him alone. The larger catechism of the Westminster Assembly of Divines, produced in the 1640s, has a question which relates to the first commandment. And I think the answer is very illuminating. The question is, what are the duties required in the first commandment? And this is the answer. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honouring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. What a full and illuminating answer. Commenting on the duties required in the first commandment, J.G. Voss has written, we may summarize these duties by saying that this commandment requires a devotion to God which shall be supreme, a devotion to God which shall be total, a devotion to God which shall be all-inclusive, so that our relation to God is the supreme and all-important fact of our lives. If we regard our relation to God as a side issue or a minor detail of our lives, we have not even begun to take the first commandment seriously. You shall have no other gods before me. To be faithful in keeping the first commandment, we must seek by God's grace to be God-centered in every aspect of our lives. We must seek by God's grace to be God-centered in our thinking. We must seek to be God's by God's grace to be God-centered in our thinking and our speaking and in our working. When preaching the gospel, I must seek to do it in a God-centered way. When evangelizing the lost, I must seek to do it in a God-centered way. Because it's only by by doing it in that kind of way that we are obeying the first commandment and we are giving him the glory that is due to him alone. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We now turn our attention to the second commandment. 
Exodus 20 and verses 4 to 6. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commands. Now some may ask, is this not merely an amplification of the first commandment? Condemning as it does the bowing down and worshipping of other gods through images. And the straightforward answer is no. The thought in mind here is of God's people making representations of God or the things associated with him and bowing down and worshipping them. It has more to do with the manner of true worship than it has to do with the object of true worship. And so we've moved from thinking about the object of true worship and now the manner by which we worship the one true God. We ask ourselves the question, was it necessary for God to give this commandment to Israel, to his people, after they came out of Egypt? We ask the question, is it necessary for God to remind his covenant people today of this command? And the answer to both questions is yes. And the reason why we answer in the affirmative is because this commandment strikes against a desire that is deeply rooted in the human heart. The desire mainly to bring in some aids to the worship of of God. Aids which are not appointed in his word. You see, people crave after things which can be taken in with the senses. Especially the visual. Those were the corruptions that that crept into the church prior to the Reformation. And the reformers dealt with that, removing often the visual that people might concentrate on the invisible God when they came to worship. Now we have examples of such desires in the Old Testament. Moses had barely received the commandments when the second commandment was broken. The people implored Aaron to make a visible representation of God. They said, Moses is gone and and he represented God to us, but he's left us, so, so Aaron, make us a representation of God. And so Aaron complied with, complied with their wishes and the golden calf which he made was, was not meant, meant to represent uh, some false god, some Egyptian god, some god worshipped by the heathen, but was meant to represent the Lord Jehovah himself. Aaron in fact made it clear. He said to them that it was a symbol of the God who had brought them up out of Egypt. Was that terribly wrong? Uh, They wanted a visual aid. They wanted something that they could see. Rather than worshipping the invisible God, God who is a spirit. How did God react? The intensity of his wrath 
almost knew no bounds. 3,000 men were slain in punishment. It was no small thing to depart from the true worship of Jehovah. God has a zeal over his own worship. Something similar happened several centuries later. Jeroboam, you remember, uh, split away from the southern kingdom. The kingdom was divided. Rehoboam ruled over Judah and Benjamin. And Jeroboam ruled over the ten northern tribes. But according to the law of God, the center of worship was to be Jerusalem. But it was in the southern state. And so Jeremiah recognized that there could be a problem. The people's allegiance would quickly go back to Rehoboam if they were traveling constantly to Jerusalem to worship. And so he authorized the setting up of calves of gold in Dan, uh, up there in the far north of his, his kingdom, and down there in Bethel in the southern border of his kingdom. Not that uh, these calves were meant to represent in any sense the Baal gods, the gods of Canaan. No, they were meant to represent the one true God, the God that they had formerly worshipped at Jerusalem. Jeroboam did not intend the people to worship uh, false gods. No, this was just a, a slight tweaking of God's revealed word, uh, a slight alteration in the geographical Centers of worship. For he did not want them, as I said, to go back to Jerusalem. For he feared the political consequences of such a habit. And so he persuaded the people to set up these images. And right down through the remainder of the New Testament, Jeroboam is described as the man who made Israel to sin. And... That's not where it ends because a couple of generations later, 60 or 70 years later, we discover the whole nation of Israel is involved in the corrupt and degrading worship of Baal, as we read in 1 Kings 16, 30-33. And if you have your Bibles with you, we could read those four verses. And we will see where a breaking of the second commandment led Israel in two generations. Didn't seem to do much harm initially, but this is where it led them. First Kings 16 and verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians. And began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Ashtra pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. A slight tweaking of the geographic centers of worship. A setting up of images to represent God. Something on which the people could focus with their eyes. And two generations later, 60 or 70 years later, the whole nation given over to Baal worship. And what about God's spokesmen, the prophets at such a time? What about Elijah? 
hunted and hounded, persecuted, many of them put to death. These examples from the Old Testament illustrate for us the importance of this commandment, how that its observance helps to promote the spiritual welfare of God's people, and that the breaking of this commandment leads people away from God, not maybe immediately, not perceptibly, but within a generation or two. And so in considering this commandment and its relevance for us today, we notice first of all the prohibition God makes. What is it that God prohibits? What did he forbid? Put simply, we are not to make a likeness of anything and bow down before it in worship. Not to bow down before anything for the purpose of religious devotion. What does God prohibit then and what does he take exception to? God prohibits the worship of his person through images. The Roman Catholic hierarchy encourages the use of images and representations of Christ in their places of worship. So how do they reconcile this with the second commandment? Well, they would say that these images, these relics, which may consist of Christ on a wooden cross or a statue of Mary or of some saint or an angel, they would say that that these, these relics help people in their devotions. Uh, these relics lead people to God. They say that it will help people to focus on Christ and the things of God. And so they attempt to justify their use. But what happens in actual practice? The image or the relic begins to receive increasingly more and more attention. So much so that it becomes the object of worship. It becomes the object of adoration. And the worship of the living God goes by default. That's what happened in Israel. The golden cows were meant to represent God. But eventually, as we noticed, over a couple of generations, the whole nation began to worship false gods. Images or religious relics get between a worshipper and his God. As as one preacher has said, when I pray, I don't want any image to hide God's face from me. Why is the inside of many church buildings straightforward and simple? It's because we have not come to, to worship a building. The building is not the church. It is simply a meeting house in which the church assembles. The church assembles to worship the unseen God. God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In some situations, the building becomes the all-important thing. It is what the people adore. It is what the people talk about. And we're afraid sometimes it's what the people worship. And so it gets between, becomes a barrier between the people and their God. We know that in the summertime, thousands of tourists pour into some church buildings, not to worship God, but, but to worship and adore the building. 
the imagery, the architecture, the statues, the statues, the things that were meant to lead the people in their worship, have now displaced the Lord himself and become objects of man's affection. The worship building, in many respects, is just like any other building. There's nothing sanctimonious about it. It only takes on a a special significance when the people of God assemble there. Then it contains the church, the church of the living God, the people who are the precious gems of Christ. And we must be careful in our public worship that that nothing gets between us and our God. Some today lay great store by pictures of Jesus. But by doing so, they show an utter disregard for this commandment. Today we have no knowledge of the physical appearance of Jesus, none whatsoever. No one knows what he looked like. And so any picture conjured up by man no matter how well motivated, is bound to give a false impression, is bound to present a false image. And so many of the pictures and much of the imagery depicts Christ hanging on a cross, a pathetic, helpless figure. But how degrading this is to Christ, when in actual fact he is sitting at the right hand of God. He is the king anointed, He is the lamb upon the throne. He is in a position of power and great glory. Remember what he said to his disciples just prior to his ascension. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. King of kings and Lord of lords. How dare we show him in such a pathetic state. Let us adore him for all his majesty and all his glory, in all his exalted state. But then we also notice in relation to the second commandment, the principle God establishes. The principle God establishes. The Westminster Divines in the 1640s, when they were giving consideration to the second commandment, recognised that it was establishing a very important principle. Namely, that God himself, and only God, had the right to say how he should be worshipped. Going back to the larger catechism, the question is asked, what are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The answer is, the the sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counselling, commanding, using, and any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God himself. The same point is made in the Confession of Faith, published by the Westminster Divines, chapter 21, paragraph 1. The acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will, He may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed, not defined in Holy Scripture. 
Now these statements produced by the divines is backed up by many portions of scripture. Deuteronomy 12, 31 and 32. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. Mark 7, 6 to 8. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. To name but a few of the texts that they refer to. Deuteronomy 12, 31 and 32 reads, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. That's the way of the surrounding peoples in Canaan. Because in worshipping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. God has a zeal over his own worship. He sets out how we ought to worship him. Now the thought may be in your mind, why? Why should God guard his worship so carefully? Why has he such a zeal over his own worship? Well, the answer comes back to the very nature of worship itself. In worship... Sinful, fallen man, albeit redeemed in Christ, is approaching God, is approaching the Almighty God, is approaching the All-Holy God. And how is man to make that approach? Prior to the fall, the approach did not require the same specific regulation because man was in a right relationship with God. But man's sin, man's rebellion in the garden made it necessary for worship to be regulated. William Young of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of North America, he has put it this way, I quote, The total corruption and deceitfulness of the human heart disqualified man from judging what is to be admitted into the worship of God. It may be that before the fall, our first parents had written in their hearts the law of worship, and by looking within the depths of their own beings, could read off the commandments of God. Yet even then, they were not without direct external communication of the will of him who walked and talked with them in the garden. Since the fall, however, though the human conscience still witnesses in all men, That worship is due to a supreme being. No information can be gained from the heart of man as to how God is to be worshipped. And then Dr. James Bannerman, 19th century theologian of the Church of Scotland, he analyses the situation after the fall and this is what he writes. After the fatal separation between man and God occasioned by the fall, it remained for God and for him alone to say whether he should ever again permit the approach of man to him in the way of worship. And if so, it remained for God and for him alone to prescribe the terms and to regulate the manner of the approach. In regard to such a matter as either the conditions or the way of a sinner's approach to God and accepted worship, it was for the sinner not to devise his own method but to receive submissively God's method. I don't believe we can quarrel with that conclusion of Bannerman's. 
For if we were to go through uh, the scriptures and consider God's dealings with his people, we would discover that in every age, God dictated the way a sinner might approach him acceptably. The rite of sacrifice, Genesis 4 and verse 4, and the mother promise of Genesis 3.15, define the manner by which mankind should worship God immediately after the fall. Added to these during the times of Abraham and the patriarchs, there was the establishment of the covenant and the the ordinance of circumcision. After the exodus from Egypt, God prescribed the Passover, the giving of the law, the tabernacle, and eventually the temple services. And since the tabernacle was to be the focal place in the worship of God, for generations we note that its design and layout was not left for man to determine. God clearly specified every detail, Exodus 25 and verse 9. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And when the temple came to be built, it was the same pattern and plan. According to First Chronicles 28, verses 11 and 12, Then David gave his son Solomon the places for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. And when we come to the New Testament, we find that the same principle applies. The worship is preeminently more spiritual since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Yet its manner is still controlled by a sovereign God. For example, Jesus instructs the Samaritan woman about the nature of true worship. And the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12, 28 and 29 speaks of acceptable worship, of worshipping God acceptably with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. Thus we see that in no age since the fall have sinners been left to their own devices regarding the manner of worship. The conclusion is that the sinner, the believer, redeemed in Christ, dare not approach God except according to the express manner God has laid down. And then as we we come to a conclusion, we notice, first of all, the warning God issues, the second commandment, and the promise God gives. I promise to be brief. Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them and worship or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So here God defines the punishment for those who violate this commandment, those who bow down and worship other things, those who bring innovations into the worship of God. Some people may consider that God is placing the children in a very unfair position. But God is not saying here that he will condemn the children just because their parents are evil. But when the children follow in the evil footsteps of their fathers, they must suffer for their sin. G. Campbell Morgan, the famous London preacher at the beginning of the 20th century, 
This is what he has written. It is a solemn thing that thus to pass on to children a wrong conception of God. It is the most awful thing a man can do. Nothing can minimize the awfulness of such conduct. But here is the root of it all. When a man puts something as the object of his worship in the place of God, he passes on the same practice to his offspring. What a terrible heritage he is thus handing down to the child. And John L. Mackay, who was lecturing to you last week and the previous week, he has written an excellent commentary in the book of Exodus. And commenting on this commandment, he writes thus, This part of the commandment is a solemn warning that our conduct affects not only ourselves, but our families and descendants. It is not accidental that the language used here is that of the family. It is the home that is the primary training ground for the next generation. And religious decline does not arise from the failure of the church or the state, but from the failure of the family to live close to God. The warning God issues. Now the promise God gives. Standing side by side with the warning is God's gracious promise of verse 6. But showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. Biblical commentators agree that the word generation is implied here. The meaning therefore is that God's love extends to a thousand generations. And it's a Reformation principle of interpretation that we interpret scripture by scripture. And so when we look to Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, it confirms this conclusion. A verse which reads, Know therefore that, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So this pre- presents us with a remarkable comparison. God visits the iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but he shows his steadfast love to the thousandth generation. God's mercy stretches further than his wrath. If you love God, if you serve God, if you worship God as he is appointed, and teach your children to do likewise, then you can anticipate that they too will love and worship God. In turn, they will teach their children And so you can look forward to generations yet unborn, praising and magnifying the Lord. In that way, the blessings of God are passed on to future generations. How shall we then worship? In spirit and in truth. The commandments of God teach us about purity of worship. Worshipping God only in the way he is appointed in his word. Worshipping God with our whole beings. For you see, it is, it is possible to draw near to God with our lips, leaving our hearts far from him. Worship must not only proceed from the lips, it must issue from the heart. Worship has been defined as a child of God, having sweet and precious communion with the Heavenly Father. And so may we all know such sweet communion as we worship God in our homes, as individuals and as families. May we know such sweet communion when we meet together for public worship, that is, when we gather together to to praise God, to pray to God, 
to read his word and to listen to the gospel preached. And also on those occasions when we meet to partake of the Lord's Supper. Let us at all times seek to worship God, having no other gods before him, and to worship him who is a spirit, in spirit and in truth, as Christ has commanded us. Amen. Thank you very much indeed um, for that. Can we just, uh, for a moment, do what we normally do, just to be quiet and uh, uh, maybe stretch our legs, but not too far, and uh, leave us ourselves some time for questions. Um, upon us. One is to be audible so that the people at the back can hear the question and secondly to be sufficiently clear that it goes into the microphone and is picked up uh, by Mr. Sword here. I'm not sure what he does with all of this uh, but we do need to do that. He sells them. I I knew Shirley would have an answer for me. Um, Right. I expect us to be challenged and not to have our emotions tickled. Anyone would like to ask the first question? Yes. Gentleman here. Can, can you just hold it a minute? Sorry. Right. The um, evangelical circle in which I move... Um, if can one, you hear that in the back? Right. If one attended their, place, their services of worship, one would find that... They're all very, very, you know, quite different to each other, and yet their love for the Lord is is without question. I'm thinking of the uh, remark you made that the only worship that's valid is that which God has revealed. So could you just put in a nutshell your definition of worship? Uh, I know we should all, there's a dictionary definition. How, How would you see worship? How would you define it? Uh, and what part uh, of our worship should the communion service or the breaking of bread service play a part? Did you all hear that? Would you, would you say that some churches are not expressing divinely revealed worship, valid worship, where, where others are, you know, in the evangelical circle? That's the, just the thing that's the gist of the question bothering is, me. Yeah. I, I'll probably yeah. not put it as you would want it. Right. Evangelical okay. worship seems to be a mixed bag. Yes. Um, you, didn't, you didn't say that, but that's what you mean, I think. Well, it could be, but let me, let's ask the, answer the question. Uh, it's a mixed bag. What is worship, in a nutshell, and how should we celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper? Is that right? What part in worship should that play? The Lord's Supper. Yes. Communion. Well, I, I would answer to begin with and say that none of our worship is what it ought to be. Uh, whatever church we belong to, it's not what, we ought to, what it ought to be. Uh, it's all frail, it's all flawed. Uh, we present it through Christ and we trust that he makes it uh, acceptable to God. Now, having said that, I think it's, it's uh, becoming of all of us uh, to go back to the scriptures 
and to, to see what worship is and how worship is to be expressed. And so what I, what I think is why it's a mixed bag is that we were all going about worship according to our own devices, according to our own imaginations, uh, uh, rather than searching the scriptures. What the reformers did, they said, we've got to go back to first principles. We've got to see what the word of God says about worship. And the doctrine of worship was formulated. What I find in, in Northern Ireland increasingly is that, that when I mention the doctrine of worship, oh, I didn't know there was such a thing. I thought that was something we, we just did. Uh, and so, so we've all got to get back and find out. Now, now worship itself, and this is another flawed thought. People come to worship to get a good experience, uh, to feel good. Did I get a buzz out of it? But, but it's, it's not like that at all. It's, worship is, is extolling God. He is, he is worthy of all adoration. And it's through, through our praise and through our prayer. Uh, it's through our reading of the scriptures. It's through the preaching of the word that he is glorified, that he is magnified, that he is exalted. And that's what worship should be about. Whether, whether we get tickled by it or not, whether we get excited by it or not, whether we feel good about it or not, that's immaterial, that's secondary. But it's to extol him. Uh, it's, uh, I've, I've heard of an illustration used once. Uh, a man was wanting to, to buy his wife something special for her birthday. And so he thought to himself, well, I just have no idea, and men aren't very good at these sort of things. <laughs> so, he, so he thought, well, what excites her? What excites me? And what I would like, she would surely like. And so he went out and bought a set of golf clubs and got it all nicely wrapped up <laughs> and presented it to his wife. Uh, and she was horrified and her face fell a mile. And that's, that's often how we conceive worship. If, it, if, it's, if we feel good about it, well, then God would surely accept it. So to get back to first principles, what does the Bible say about worship? What does God authorize in his worship? And we should seek to, to work that out and follow it. With regard to the Lord's Supper, I think it should have a, it's an integral part of worship. It's, it's authorised, it's set out in the Gospels, it's set out in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's to be, and he gives quite a few regulations there about examining ourselves, it should be thoughtful, and so it should be part. The big debate in Ireland is how frequent should we have it. I come from a Presbyterian background, and historically we have had it infrequent, uh, and I have many evangelical friends who have it frequent. Uh, maybe uh, the balance lies somewhere in the middle. Probably we go back to the Passover, which w it went before, uh, and it was celebrated annually. Uh, we have communion three or four times a year. Uh, some brethren have it every week. I hope that answers your question to, to, to some extent. <laughs> It is a mixed bag. I stick to that. <laughs> so, one, so one is right and the rest are wrong. Are you asking me? Or... <laughs> I think there's, a, there's the constituent elements of worship which we should all agree on. What is, there's been a lot of innovation in the last... Yes. 10, 15, 20 years, things have crept into the worship of God which would horrify the reformers, horrify our forefathers and frankly horrify me. 
Uh, and so I think we have to be careful of what we, what we bring in uh, that is not scripturally based. I really do not like to be chairman because I feel inhibited <laughs> from asking questions and making comments. I hope you've noticed. Uh, but I read out to you last week, if you were here and awake, uh, something from Alistair Begg's book on the Ten Commandments, where he listed some of the characteristics of, uh, I suppose, modern evangelical practice. And one of the things he says that he detects an absence of the fear of God in public worship. Whenever I raise that, people say we shouldn't fear God anymore because since Jesus, we don't fear God. Can you sort of reconcile all of that for, yes, yes, for us and me? Yes, and yes. I hope that's a useful question. Well, well uh, the writer to the Hebrews is post-Jesus, and, and he writes about worship, closing verses of chapter 12, which I did quote, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And, and it's this balance between, yes, he is our heavenly father, and we can approach him as children to a father, but he is in the highest heaven. He is the thrice holy God. And that concept has it, it's, uh, it's gone out of the Christian community. And it actually used to be in the non-Christian community, where, where I grew up in Northern Ireland, the fear of God in, in the 50s and 60s uh, was abroad and people were restrained because they understood something of the awesomeness of God and infringing his law and infringing his commandments but, but that has gone from the unbelieving community and now it's going from the believing community and one wonders what will be the outcome of that for their children and for their grandchildren Question on the front here John you, you mentioned Jeconiah, uh, sorry, Jeroboam. Um, yes. You, uh, actually, you said a slip of the tongue in one place. You referred to him as Jeremiah. Jeroboam, there's a thing called the sin of Jeroboam. Yes. Would you say that it's um, reproduced in the church at large today? Well, yes, I, I was hinting about that. He was... Um, you may have to explain that before you answer the question, right, right. I suspect. Well, the sin of Jeroboam was the, uh, the setting up of the, the, the centres of worship uh, uh, at, in the northern capital of Dan and in the southern of Bethel as alternative places of worship, not authorised by God. Uh, it was a pragmatic thing. It was to be popular with the people. And, and the very same thing is happening today Little things which don't seem to be too much out of step with God's word are being introduced because of popular appeal, because it will, will keep the young people, because it will, will, will uh, bring in a crowd. Uh, and surely, God, you must be happy with that. We, we try to argue uh, our changes and say, God, you should be happy because, look, it's filling the church. But what happens in two generations the church is empty, and we wonder what, why they all forsook. And that's two generations after 
Jeroboam introduced these slight deviations from the worship, the authorized worship of God, Ahab, 60 or 70 years, was promoting Baal worship throughout the northern kingdom. And if you think of what has happened to England in the last 60, 70 years, um, it's minimal the number of people who worship God and they're, they're pursuing the false gods that I outlined under the, the first commandment. And that's happening in Northern Ireland too. I'm not just simply pointing, but we're a wee bit behind and I hope we have time to see where we're going. Is that a supplementary question? Well, it's not supplementary. I think uh, no. I, I, I think to um, expand on the question that the point the point is that that Jeroboam's sins, uh, the things that he brought in, were very major departures. They weren't slight deviations, and I um, I, I really believe that the church generally, particularly the established churches, have uh, departed very seriously from what God has given us. And what God has commanded. Well, any breach of a commandment of God is serious, but I'm saying it might have been perceived by the population as small and trivial and not very much. Yes, any breach, uh, any, of, any breaking of the law is an offence to God, and we must never minimise that. So thanks for the corrective, but it could have been perceived by the people uh, as being small and trivial and, and was sold to them uh, without any great difficulty. But the outcome of it, it's very, very serious. There's a question over, over here. Thanks for um, what you gave us tonight. The, when you started to introduce what you were talking about, the second commandment, it says not so much don't uh, bow down to graven images of other gods, but specifically no graven images of the true God. Mm. Could you say a little bit more about why you're so definite about that distinction? Um, and if I can uh, break the principles of the 8th and 10th commandment and ask two questions. Uh, the second one is, I really struggle to... You see in the Old Testament very specific um, uh, things that God says about how he should be worshipped. So there's a general principle there that God must be worshipped in the way that he says, not in the way that we think. But when I come to uh, thinking about the things about in the New Testament era... The, 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 the scriptural data on that is less than in the Old Testament, although I think the principles still apply. I really struggle to know how that works out in practice. So have you any advice for that? Have you got all those questions? <laughs> I think there were probably six. <laughs> well, the first one uh, deals with the, the images. And remember, these commandments were given uh, to the covenant people of God, uh, to his redeemed community. Uh, and so I think it's in that context that I interpreted initially as images of the one true God. Uh, and, and then that leads eventually to, to false gods. But I, I, it's on that basis that I believe that it was images of the, the one true God. And I think that's what they immediately did. It was uh, Aaron made an image which was meant to represent they hadn't, they hadn't suddenly gone berserk and forgotten the God that had delivered him, but that was an image. And I think uh, uh, when Jeroboam set up gods, it was an image, images of Jehovah, craving after a God that they could see. And I think that craving is still with us to a visible representation. I think that's why why drama is so popular, because it makes visible uh, what's meant to be invisible. Then your second question was, uh, God has commanded authorised worship in the Old Testament. 
agree with you, the principle still applies and it's, it's, it's our responsibility, our duty to work out uh, the application of the principle in, in the fulfilment of, of uh, many of the Old Testament types and symbols in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's something that engages us and I think we have a good pattern in church history um, to, to look at as to how the theologians worked that out and what the church practised. Uh, I think the problem in this generation of the church is that we, we, we like to invent everything new uh, and we don't like to think that the Puritans and the Reformers have anything to teach us. And so I don't want to begin to specify what I believe because um, I, I want people to work that out for themselves.